Okay. Don't have a cheat sheet for you tonight. I will in the weeks to come, but I uh, was somewhat pressed for time this week and, and, and getting us started. So uh, I think I shared with some of you, we, the plan right now, unless there's some massive cataclysmic alteration for Bethany and I, uh, we're going to name our son Elliot. Now, why? One, it sounds good. I like Elliot Wilkinson. It sounds like a good name. Uh, but there's a reason. Uh, the reason is uh, because of the impact that both Jim and Elizabeth Elliot have had in each one of our lives, uh, respectively, and in, in, in the impact there. Now, I say that to say, clearly, Bethany and I have never met Jim. Never heard the sound of his voice. Seen a picture of him. Seen some silent footage of him. Don't know the sound of his voice. I have had the privilege to meet Elizabeth Elliot in her older age, but unfortunately, it was after she, uh, after we had, we lost the ability to understand what all she was saying. Um, Bethany's not met Elizabeth Elliot. So why on earth, how on earth have our lives been touched by two people that we've never met? By the way, for as much as, uh, you know, my grandfather's Mr. Southern Baptist, I I'm not aware of any connections to Elizabeth Elliot through my, I mean, I'm like, he didn't, Two people totally removed from my family. Well, the answer is church history. And I give you that example to say this is part of why it matters that we study church history. Uh, part, part of why it matters, it lets us know not who we are. Scripture tells us who we are, but church history shows us how that's played out. It encourages us. It challenges us. We, we see uh, faithful men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us. We see unfaithful, maybe brothers, maybe sisters in Christ or not, who've fallen before us. We've seen ways, we've done it right, ways you don't, there's all sorts of reasons that we study church history that are important. And my hesitation in, in doing this, I, I don't know, um, I'm not going to try to drag this out forever on Wednesday nights, but my hesitation has always been, it's Wednesday night Bible study. And I can't always promise when we're trying to dive into church history that it's going to be the most in-depth Bible study you've ever had. At the same time, many of the questions that you're faced with, and when I say you, I mean every one of us in this room of all different ages, are questions that are church history questions. Why are there so many denominations? You're not going to get the answer in the 66 books of the Bible because there weren't any of those denominations in there. What do Catholics really believe, and, and does it matter? Is it different than us? What about the Orthodox Church? Or, um, you know, we can pick different, different groups and things that are faced. All of these are questions of church history. Even some of the debates going down at the National Southern Baptist Convention right now, why they are all biblical questions with biblical answers, by that I mean the Bible verse says this, they have also been implemented by faithful churches throughout church history to where we look at and go and look at how it has almost unanimously always been understood. So it's important that we study church history. My hope is that you will have a lot of questions maybe you've pondered or maybe you've had people ask you that you've gone, I don't know how to answer that. Um, my hope is that you'll get some answers over the course. Uh, if I can give you just a snapshot of what church history is going to be for us. It's going to be 500 years of a lot of really interesting things that some of you will have never heard. Then it's going to be 1,000 years of boredom with a couple bright spots. And then it's going to just get crazy for the next 600 years to today. That's kind of going to be, if you want church history in a nutshell, the last 2,100 years, that's, that's what it is. Uh, so we're going to dive in. I'm excited. We'll, this is what we're going to do for the summer. It may take us slightly beyond the summer. I have done this before. I've taught church history before in two six-hour, uh, 6 p.m. to midnight Bible studies that had bathroom breaks. So I tell you that, at most, I probably have 11 to 12 hours of material already done up in notes. Now, that sounds like a lot, but I also want you to understand, if you were to go to seminary and just take the basic requirement of church history, you would get 90 hours. So what I'm trying to give you an overview I want you to be informed, but by no means are any of us going to be experts because unless, I mean, I can give you 90 hours, but that means we're, that means we're going to be studying in church history every Wednesday night until it's 2025 or 26. So anyways, 
Just giving you some provisos. Now, coming into church history, I do want to backtrack to something. We've covered a little bit before, but I, it has to be, it has to serve as our basis. So uh, we have my map, my clicker. There we go. Here we go. Here's my map. When we get to the end of the New Testament, the last book written in the New Testament is the book of Revelation, written by John in exile on Patmos sometime in the late 90s of the first century. That's where, and really from a narrative standpoint, the book of Acts, which is uh, after the Gospels, the only other narrative in the New Testament, that, that ends sometime in the early 60s A.D., so we're going to kind of stick with the New, the New Testament as far as like describing the story of, of God and Christianity kind of wraps up around 60 AD, even though there are some letters that are written afterwards. And in those early days, there's some aspects about the world, aspects about where the churches are, just to make sure we're all in on it. And by the way, Daniel, y'all got choir tonight. Yes, where's Daniel? Great. So just for the record for everybody, the great thing about doing it this way is when that clock reads 5-5, five, five, I'm just going to stop no matter where we're at unless I'm in the middle of a sentence, and I'll finish my sentence and we'll stop, okay? Because uh, this would be a little bit more of, a, of teaching uh, as opposed to maybe a Bible study where I've got to make sure to get through at least the whole point. Three aspects of culture in, in the, the, early, the early church, New Testament era, and, and right afterwards. One, you've got Roman law and government. Jesus is born at a, at a unique transition. Jesus is born just a few decades after even the Roman Empire, which we've seen in, in gruesome terms this last Sunday, this beast that was indescribable and unmatchable to any known animal, to, to Daniel. It's a beast that just obliterates and conquers everything that is there. This Roman Empire, shortly before the birth of Christ, is going to move from a republic to a, a dictatorship, to an emperorship. There's an emperor when Jesus is born. It's Caesar Augustus, uh, who is ushered in what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And this is vital for, for the, the message of the gospel to spread. You have an empire that, uh, now this is 117, but most of this is under Roman control in the birth of Christ. And all throughout this, you have paved Roman roads to travel on, you have, uh, you have the Roman army, which is large and able to keep the peace. Uh, you have a, a common language in Koine Greek, uh, and then the, it, it, and, and those things. So you have Roman law with, with the, the iron-fisted rule of Rome comes a world which is not up in arms at warfare and through which the message of the gospel can spread through ease of travel. You also have not just Rome, but before Rome, who came? Greece. You have the Greek culture and philosophy. So the law and the government is Roman, but the culture and philosophy is heavily Greek. Uh, what will happen when Alexander the Great comes and conquers the known world, the process of Hellenization will begin to occur, where he would spread the Greek language, the Greek culture to all these conquered peoples, who specifically for us, all of this right here, and you'll see here in a moment even more so why this is important, this, this region, so there is now a common language. You and I are going to speak the language of our locality. If we're growing up in Jesus' day, we're going to speak some Hebrew. We're going to know some Hebrew. That's the language of our religion. We're going to speak in Aramaic. That's kind of the everyday language if, if we're Jewish. But all of us are going to speak Koine Greek, which is going to mean I'm going to have the ability to speak to somebody from Egypt and somebody from Greece and, and somebody from, from Rome. We're going to have a common tongue that we can speak to one another. It means Paul can walk into any of these cities and begin to talk to everybody who's there, even if they're all from different places. That hadn't happened before in the world. And by the way, that process for the Greek language has gone on for about 400 years, so it's deeply entrenched. It's not like it's a new thing. There's going to be Greek philosophical ideas that are going to set the stage uh, for, for ideas of Christianity to, to come and, and be more easily understood. In the midst of all the Greek culture and philosophy, you're going to have the Jewish religion. Now, by Jewish religion, I mean Judaism, not... Uh, we're going to distinguish this from the Old Testament. We're not talking about the Old Testament walking with God 
some yes, some no, by the, by the Jews. We're talking about Judaism as distinct from Christianity. You're going to have uh, the Jewish people, not, not the Christians, but the Jewish people falling under Judaism. They're going to, uh, after the book of Acts concludes, they're going to, between 66 and 73 AD, they're going to try three different times to overthrow Roman occupation. It's going to get so bad uh, initially, it's Vespasian that's down dealing with it. He gets called back to be emperor. And then it's Titus, who will later go on to be emperor. Titus is going to come in. And of course, this is when Titus and the armies are going to come down to Jerusalem right here. And they will, for once and for good and for all, until 1948, obliterate it and drive all the Jews out. They're going to level the temple. They're going to throw it off into ruins. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the ruins of the temple lying on the ground. Well, how'd that get there? The Romans pushed it down. That's how. And it's stayed there ever since. He's going to come in and destroy. And of course, uh, some, some Jews are going to escape from there. They're going to make their way south to what, a, what is Masada. If you've ever seen pictures of it's a it's a fascinating fortress built by Herod the Great on top of... Um, a, a step, I mean, it's just, it's just a standalone giant, yeah, a step, is that, a mesa, yeah, that's it, there it is, a uh, mesa, um, and of course what the Romans, and you can, when it's fascinating, when you go there today, you can see the outlines to this day of the Roman camps surrounding it, where those Jews would have seen the armies tinted and, and, and there, and basically, uh, the Romans just took their time and built a giant ramp, which, I mean, it's a giant ramp, uh, and could march in and, and, and thus ends that revolt. But in the midst of all of this, the initial opposition to Christianity is from the local Jewish leaders. The initial anger, the initial hostility, it's from the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, it's, it's from the Sanhedrin. The local Jewish leaders are going to be hostile to the church. We see that uh, in the first martyr, Stephen. He's not killed by Romans, he's killed by the Jews. Uh, we're going to see that in James the Apostle, not killed by the Romans, killed by the Jews. The initial persecution, and, and Acts chapter 8, when the persecution breaks out and the church explodes out of Jerusalem uh, and, and, and into surrounding regions and, and Saul is, is driving at it, it's Jewish persecution. What's going to change about the time the New Testament ends, what's going to start to change is the Romans and other cultures are going to start to pick up on the fact that Christianity is not a version of Judaism, but is something different. But in some ways, they're also still viewed as the same up until that point. Now, for the early church, they're going to use the Old Testament scriptures as their Bible, especially the Septuagint, which is that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. They're going to model their teaching and worship off of the synagogue because that's, remember, who are the majority of the first believers? Jews. It's what they know. It's what they're, what they're coming from. And then they will begin to expand out. Now, giving you all of that in the world in which the first church came up in. Let me read you this quote. Could anything be more improbable than that a religion following a man born of an unwed mother among a widely despised people in, a, in an out-of-the-way part of the world, a man then crucified by the ruling authorities on a charge of treason, should become the official religion of the Roman world, the formative influence on Western civilization and significant influence in other parts of the world, and quite literally, the person upon whom the entire calendar is set. That's nuts, unless it's true. So in the early church, when we move out of, you know, we, we, in the book of Acts, if you remember, uh, Acts, Acts, 1, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, is now the time you're going to bring your kingdom? That fifth kingdom that we know Daniel prophesied is now the time, and he's going to say, not your business. So it's not for you to know the times and epochs. You don't get to know the specifics. You know it's coming. That's what you need to know. I've taught you the signs of when it's near, but it's not for you to know all the details. Your job is to now be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to go be my witnesses. You're going to go testify to who I am, to my greatness, to my goodness, the message that, that I have come, I've lived, I've died, I've risen. You're going to go testify where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And if you follow the rest of the book of Acts, that is the outline of the rest of the book of Acts. The early growth of the church in Jerusalem, the spread of the church into the surrounding regions of Judea, 
the spread of the church into Samaria. And then you have a flip in chapter 13, where all of a sudden we move from focusing on Peter and, and then the disciples in the, in the Holy Land to now focusing on Paul, who will go to the ends of the earth. And of course, the book ends not with Paul's death, but with the statement that Paul made it to Rome, which is, which, which is um, literal, but symbolically tells you he, he's made it to the capital of the grandest empire. The gospel is spreading to every known corner. Now, what are the, but in that world, what are the major churches? Well, obviously, the church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem is the earliest church, and it's going to be uh, a prominent church in, in the, uh, the time of the early church. Uh, you're going to have a, a mixture of people by the time we get uh, past the New Testament that are down there, but, but it, what we know of them, they, they early worship reflected Judaism, they visited the temple often, they observed Jewish customs. We know they were they were driven out, uh, that some were in Acts 2, some who initially came to faith in Christ that day, they were out of town. So they went back to their towns preaching the gospel. We know the message that they preach. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I told you of first importance what I first was told, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. That is the earliest gospel witnessing track, if you will. Uh, in fact, people, linguistic scholars who can trace down and pinpoint all of that, uh, it is estimated that within the first 18 months of Jesus's resurrection, that is what was being said on the streets, specifically. That's the oldest portion of the New Testament that we know. So we know what the content of their gospel was. It all centered around the Son of Man, who is also the suffering servant, who has come and has ushered in the kingdom, though it's not all yet in full. Um... The Jewish church, now the church in Jerusalem is going to be prominent, but is obviously going to fall after 70 AD when Rome sacks Jerusalem. That's going to curb a certain level of that influence because Jerusalem is absolutely obliterated. By the way, there's some really cool, if, you, uh, if you're YouTube savvy, I'd have to pull up the link sometime and post it, but there's some really cool uh, videos out there. They're long, so you got to be willing to give it about 20 minutes but they show you reconstructions of Jerusalem from the time of Abraham to, uh, some of them go as far as modern day, and it's just computers, and they show you just over time how the city grew and transformed, and it's interesting when you see this portion of what it looked like before 70 AD and then what it looks like after 70 AD, because uh, they demonstrate how badly it was destroyed. In addition to Jerusalem, one of the early leading churches is a church in Antioch, right up here. Uh, Antioch, here's modern-day Syria. Uh, up there in Antioch, we know that initially uh, believers from Jerusalem got here after being scattered from the persecution of Acts chapter 8. We know from Acts 11 that this is the place where followers of Jesus are first called Christians, little Christ. Paul and Barnabas are going to be members of this church. They're going to be serving faithfully at this church when God calls them to go on their missionary journeys. This is a very multi-ethnic, multilingual uh, church. It is, a, it is a missional powerhouse. They are sending out missionaries in droves from the church in Antioch. In addition to Antioch, we know the church in Rome. Right over here, the church in Rome is going to be a prominent church. Why? Because it's the capital of the empire. It's the capital of the empire. Uh, no different than today. There's, um, you know, what's the joke in, in, in Texas? I, I, I'd say joke. When I served up in Dallas-Fort Worth, it was interesting to, to learn just the, the culture of church in Dallas-Fort Worth. First Baptist Dallas is the church in Dallas-Fort Worth. There is a whole generation of people that if First Baptist Dallas is doing it, that's what it's going to be in the New Jerusalem. Why is that? I, but, but who don't go to First Baptist Dallas? They go to other churches. Why is that? Well, because Dallas is the big city, and it's the first Baptist church. We, we do that even to this day, ascribing certain churches' prominence based on their size, based on their location, that we don't do to other churches of the same size based on their location. Um, Rome is the capital of the empire. Rome is going to, to carry with it a grandeur. In addition, uh, we know that the gospel gets, the gospel has, Paul writes the letter to Romans, if you'll remember with me through our New Testament, sometime in the 50s. And he's, and he's never been there. And there's already established churches and believers made up of Jews and Gentiles, which means whoever started, those first Christians that started the Roman church, they were there before that. Now, likely, this is speculation, but likely you had some people from Rome who were down there at Pentecost, 
heard the gospel, responded, and brought the gospel back with them. And so the church in Rome, uh, the certain, certain branches of church would say it was started by Peter. No, the truth is, it was there before Paul. It was there before Peter. We don't know who started it. What we do know and what adds to the prominence of Rome is that is Paul will end up there in prison multiple times. He will minister there some. He will die there. We know that Peter will minister there for a time and lead the church there. And Peter will die there, both under Nero's reign in the 60s AD. So Rome is a prominent church because of its position as capital and because of Peter and Paul and really their unique roles as apostles in the early church. Three other, uh, three other churches that need to be noted. Church in Ephesus. You know Ephesus from the book of Ephesians, and Ephesus is right here, this area right there. Here it's on the coast. Today it's no longer on the coast, uh, but then it was on the coast. It's founded by Paul in the book of Acts. We know Apollos is from Ephesus. We know Timothy pastored in Ephesus for a time. Uh, we know that tradition holds that John the Apostle would come to Ephesus and pastor there for a time. Tradition also says that uh, in fulfilling what Jesus told him on the cross, he brought Mary, Jesus' mother, with him, and that's where Mary died. Um, we don't know for certain, but it certainly would make sense. So church in Ephesus is a major church in the first century. The church in Syria, now by Syria, I, I mean really this, this region, this eastern region. Uh, here's Edessa right there. Uh, the church in Syria, it's, it's historically associated that the, the apostle Thomas is who brought the gospel here. Um, and of course, in Western tradition, it's actually held that Thomas will not just stop here, but he will make his way all the way to India, where a, a group, a certain um, modern-day uh, Marthoma Christians hold Thomas as the founder of the, the original church in India. Uh, now here's why I mentioned it's going to be in this area and in places like Edessa. And I don't know, let me see, I hadn't looked for this earlier. Another uh, city I'm looking for, I don't think is on this map. But in this area, moving into what's Azerbaijan and, and Armenia and modern day Georgia, moving into those, those areas, this is going to be where the Syriac language is developed, which is what a lot of our ancient copies of scripture are written in. And the reason I mention this is there is a tendency in church history um, that is not necessarily false, but it, but it can be used, it has been used problematically, it can be used problematically, which is all of church history is this idea that God told Paul, don't go right into Asia, go left into Europe, and Europe explodes in the Gospels, and look at all the European churches, and then America, and, then, and it's a very heavily Western focus of church history, and None of that's wrong. God did tell Paul, go to Europe. There, there is a lot of great stuff that happened. You're, you're, the part of the reason for that is what I mentioned Sunday, like it or not like it for whoever's out there in the world, for the most part, European powers have ruled the world for the last 2000 years. That's just the reality. What is missed though, is in the early church, especially for the first several hundred years, some of the strongest parts of the church were not Europe, but Northern Africa in the East. And many of our church fathers were North African, not European. Uh, they, they were from, from the East. There is a whole tradition, fascinating book called The Lost History of Christianity, which traces uh, the first several hundred years of church history all in this region, which oftentimes gets neglected. So I just point that out to tell you there is a whole Eastern tradition. The, the Greek Orthodox the, or the Orthodox church today, you want to know its, its founding point? Over here, we're going to look, you see this area right here, Cappadocia, not tonight, maybe next week or the week after, we're going to look at the Cappadocian fathers. Those are huge influential pastors in the history of church theologians. They're from Cappadocia. That's this area that's to the east. In addition, so the church in Syria would be important, the church in Alexandria. Alexandria is down here in Egypt. It's the second most prominent city in the Roman Empire, founded by Alexander the Great, uh, it's the home of Hellenism. This is where Greece and the Middle East met philosophically. Uh, it's home to the largest Jewish population in the Roman Empire. This is where the Hebrew scriptures are translated into Greek, the Septuagint, all here in Alexandria. Of course, if you know, uh, if you're a history buff, what's one of the ancient wonders of the world? The Library of Alexandria. 
Um, and Alexandria is a massive, influential, prominent church. In fact, as time goes on, there's going to be a sense uh, not too far into the first couple year, hundred years of church history, it's Rome and Alexandria. Those are the two prominent churches leading and paving the way uh, theologically and ministerially. Uh, the church in Alexandria, tradition holds that John Mark would eventually go and be influential in helping start the church there. Uh, had many members who were wealthy. They had a little bit of a different uh, structure from the early churches. They had what would be 12 presbyters, 12 pastors, and those pastors would elect one of them on some kind of routine basis to be the bishop, to really be the head dog, and so it was kind of a rotating in and out. Um, the Alexandrian school, we'll see this in, not tonight, but in later weeks, is going to reference a way of learning uh, it's going to maintain a free intellectual inquiry. It's going to explore faith and reason. It's going to be a major player in the life of the church. Now, I give you all of this to say, and the reason I've given you this, this backdrop of who the major churches are is I want all of us to see the great diversity of the early church. And I didn't, time just did not allow Sunday to, to fully harp there, but it's there even in Daniel. We need to all make sure we understand our God is a God who is seeking to save the souls of anybody who will respond from every tongue and tribe. Our God does not have a favorite culture. He doesn't have a favorite ethnicity. He doesn't have a favorite style of worship. I think all of us who are diehard about our, this, I've used this example, and it's, I'm, I'm picking on something that I know is angering to church folk. We're going to all be shocked when we get to heaven one day, and it's time to sing songs of praise. And God goes, every different, name, every different tongue gets one song, and you got to cycle through all of them before you get a second song. We're going to be shocked at how few we sing the songs that are your favorite and mine, because they're not God's favorite. Because God really does desire and, and, I, and I give you that to say because historically in American church life, we get bent over so many things in the name of Jesus that Jesus doesn't give a rip about. They're just our personal preference. So that's part of it. Also then saying that if uh, God really does desire to seek and save the entire world. And so we as believers... And, I, and that's probably a little more in vogue today uh, in some ways. Um, but let's say America was attacked by a hostile nation and enslaved, and you watched members of your family die at the hands of other, this other nation. It'd be a little harder to realize God loves that nation and wants those people saved just as bad as he wants you saved too. We got to really wrestle with God's heart. Revelation 7, 9, I look and behold, surrounding the throne, there was a multitude larger than any number could ascribe of every tongue, tribe, and nation, every people group, not geopolitical nation, every people group that ever lived surrounding the throne. That's got to be our hearts. That's the mission God has called us to be a part of. So these are the major churches in the early life of the church. Now, what was church life like? Well, we get hints. We get hints in Scripture Acts 2.42 tells us that that early church, uh, they responded in repentance and faith to the gospel message. They followed through in the public proclamation of that uh, in baptism, and they formed a church. And it says, what did they do? They continually devoted. They, they persistently, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves in the face of any opposition or distraction to the apostles' teaching. That'd be the proper preaching of the word of God for us, because the apostles are dead but they wrote down what they wanted us to know, what God told them, uh, what God led them and inspired for us to know. To fellowship, which is not just, oh, we sat down and had a great time talking about how TCU's the only Texas team to make the College World Series. Uh, listen, I'm not saying that can't be fellowship, but the idea of fellowship is there is something common that unites us and we are caring, we are weeping with each other, we are rejoicing with each other, we are caring, we are loving, we are bonded by something deep, commonality. By the way, fellowship can only be provided by the Holy Spirit. You and I can't foster it. You wanna foster fellowship in our church? Walk and surrender to the Holy Spirit and he'll provide that bond of fellowship. 
fellowship, the, the breaking of the bread, meaning the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of what Jesus had done. And they would do that uh, daily in the early, early church. The observance of the Lord's Supper, that was something routine that they did uh, almost daily. Um, there is no, I just remind you, there's no actual statement in Scripture. Jesus just said, as long as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So he said, so when you do it, do it right. But they would also have, speaking of that, fellowship and Lord's Supper, they would have church every day. They gathered every day with each other. They make us look horrible today when the average faithful church attender in America goes to church less than two times a month. That's to a Sunday service. That's not to a small group. That's not to a, they get every day. And I, someone say, well, life's different today. Yeah, life is different today, but it's not so different. What's different is we just don't prioritize showing up. That's what's different. We've got a lot of things to discourage us and distract us, whereas they were devoted. Uh, not only that, but they devoted themselves. I love this. You've heard me say it. They devoted themselves to wonderful ensembles, choir specials, and pageants. No, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Out loud prayer with each other, for each other, for God to move. What do we see other expressions of this? Acts chapter four, when they first start to realize, you know what? We're gonna suffer for this gospel. What do they do? They come together and they pray. And they praise, they thank God in that prayer. And they ask God for boldness in that prayer. And God fills them and they go out. Uh, we see that they are generous. They are generously giving up, giving up of their resources, their money, their, their, their time. They are, they are giving up. They are generous. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, to make sure that there are none in need. We see them meeting and God calling out of them. Acts chapter 15. We also find in the early church, they already knew that there were clear things doctrinally that were wrong. You know how I know that? Because that's what most of the New Testament is. How many times are you reading a letter of Paul and Paul says, hey, don't pay attention to so-and-so because their teaching has shipwrecked other people's faith. What they're teaching is false. Hey, Timothy, don't, don't pay attention to anybody who says to you it's not godly to get married because that's false. Hey, there's so many. They, they, our early church already knew, and, I, and I'm, I'm giving you that to kind of set up something we're not going to get to till next week. Okay, but I'm emphasizing that because we need to understand even when we read the New Testament, it's already clear there is an understanding that there are some beliefs which are true and others which are false. There is a way of living that is righteous and a way of living that is false. Those things are already clear as early as the New Testament. And what did the early church have? The Old Testament and the New Testament as the New Testament got copied and spread around. The distinctive practices of the early church were baptism, Lord's Supper, Sunday assemblies for corporate worship, other assemblies throughout the week, and an emphasis on a holy life for those who follow Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, that's awesome, Wes. You told me stuff you've already told me, and that would be somewhat true. So now in the last 15 minutes, I'm going to tell you stuff you may or may not know. That's all background to say that's the world of the early church. They met. Their gospel, the message of the early church is Jesus is the Christ, the chosen Messiah, his life, death, resurrection, and return. I'm oh, sorry, excuse me. Life, death, resurrection, ascension, at the, and sitting at the right hand of God, return. Those five key distinctives. The fact that salvation is by grace through faith, not through works. The fact that a person who is saved has a transformed life. These are the early things. Now, uh, so I'm going to give you a couple names. Here's what we're going to do potentially with the rest of the time, or at least going to get started on it. Uh, I want to introduce you to some of the earliest known. Now remember, there's a lot of believers whose names we don't know, especially the further back in time you go, because we don't have records that are able to be preserved like we do today. Um, and so these are, these, but these are some of the oldest key people. Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome died around 100 A.D., uh, he's considered to be the fourth, Roman Catholics consider him the fourth pope or the fourth pastor of the church of Rome. It's possible that when Paul in Philippians chapter three, after he calls out the two ladies who are fussing at each other, which I still think would be the most humiliating experience as a, Paul's letters read, he mentions in there, uh, he says, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement. 
There are many who believe that Clement is the same Clement of Rome who died around 100 uh, AD. He was martyred under the Domitian, Emperor Domitian, his persecution. Uh, he wrote several letters, including one to, uh, called we call First Clement to the Corinthian church, who still needs letters written to him even 40 years after Paul's gone. Clement of Rome, uh, he's going to stress, a key idea he's going to stress is the idea of apostolic secession, of the truth and this authority passed from one to the other. Ignatius is going to die around 117. He will be arrested under Emperor Trajan. Uh, we don't know, details are fuzzy about why he was arrested. Um, some have said it's possible that there were some other pastors who had gone into heresy and he called them out and in their bitterness they sold him out to the authorities and arrested him. Uh, but he was joyful about his fate. We don't know how he was martyred. We know he was martyred. He was arrested, tried. Um, I can't remember the exact city he's in, but he's over here in the east. He is, tr he is sentenced to death in Rome, which I remind you, if, if I remember correct, at this point, the Colosseum, I believe, should be finished. It's not finished under Paul, but I can't remember the exact date of the Colosseum. Regardless, here's why that pops to my mind. It's pretty strongly believed he was thrown to wild beast and torn to death. Uh, that would have been very common. In his journey to Rome, he wrote seven letters. This is one of the key reasons he's so big for us. He wrote seven letters that we have to this day. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians, the Magnesians, the Tralians, the Romans. In the letter to the Romans, he actually pleads with the Roman church because he had gotten word that they might try to spring him. He said, please don't. This is what God has chosen me for, and I don't. And in fact, I'll, I'll pull... This is what he would say to them. Well, I'll come back. To the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnians, uh, and to Polycarp, who we'll come back to in just a second. Uh, Ignatius called himself the forest, literally the God-bearer. Uh, tradition holds that he was the third pastor at Antioch, the others being Peter and one other. This, this helps us understand that in the early church, very quick in the early church, you already had the idea of a single pastor. Now, the word they early church would use is bishop. But if you hear that, you're going to have to not think bishop like what you're used to thinking of from the, from the Anglican church or the Roman church or a chess piece. Uh, bishop would have been, bishop is uh, uh, one of the Greek words. That's one of the three Greek words that's used to describe the office of pastor. So he was the single one. Um, whereas, first, whereas Clement was concerned, Clement really reflects the distinction between the Western culture and the Eastern culture of the empire. Clement was very dogmatic, wants order, practical unity. Ignatius is almost mystical and spiritual in, 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 in his piety. Uh, he's concerned about divisions within the church, especially that early on there's already the Docetists, which say that Jesus only seemed human. We'll cover those heresies. That's what I'm saying. That's next week. He insisted on, that, on the fact that Christians, would, would members of the church, would follow the leadership of their pastor. Uh, you had the bishop, the presbyters, the deacons. The bishop took the, place of, of, uh, took the place in terms of symbolized the authority of God. The presbyter symbolized the apostles. The deacon servant, serv symbolized the servants of Christ. Put it to you in modern-day terms. I'm senior pastor, the bishop, our other pastors on staff, the presbyters, our deacons, to give you kind of a modern, kind of attempted a, 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 a modern equivalent. Um, a lot of importance of, of Ignatius is what he did in helping bring and, and structure to uh, church leadership and, and, understand, and our understanding of what the early church did. You had a man by the name of Papias. He was born sometime around, uh, right before Paul's and Peter's death, died around 130 A.D., he was an acquaintance of John the Apostle. He was an acquaintance of John the Apostle. Uh, held a, uh, interestingly enough, a premillennial view of eschatology, which simply means he believed that there was a literal millennial kingdom that Jesus returns prior to and sets on the stage. And you go, well, wow, I got a lot of questions about that. That's great. We'll get there. I promise. See, we're in church history. We just got to get past church history, and then we can cover what's all going to happen at the end if it hadn't happened yet, depending on your view. That could be a very controversial statement in and of itself. Um, he's the one who tells us Mark's gospel was written from Peter's testimony. It's Papias in his writings that helps us know that. Um, now you have Polycarp. I, I, Polycarp is a fascinating figure. He wrote several letters. He was a disciple 
of John the Apostle. He was a disciple. He was, I mean, imagine that, being discipled by John the Apostle. Uh, he, uh, he compiled and preserved. The reason we have the letters of Ignatius is because Polycarp preserved them for us. He compiled and preserved them. Uh, there's one of the major first heretics in the church is Marcion, and he's going to confront him, calling him the firstborn of Satan. Ultimately, Polycarp is going to be martyred. And I want to read you a couple of uh, the statements of Ignatius and uh, Ignatius and Polycarp as we come into the end here. Ignatius heard, or you heard me say, he heard that the Roman church was going to kind of going to spring him. And he said, I fear your, car, your kindness may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, it'll be difficult for me to attain unto God, meaning he really felt like this was God's will. And if you spring me, you're causing me to violate God's will. Uh, he believed, uh, all he wanted the Christians in Rome to do was, that, was to pray, not that he'd be free, but he'd have strength to face the trial. He said, so that I may not only be called a Christian, but also behave as such. My love is crucified. I no longer savor corruptible food, but to wish to taste the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ and his blood I wish to drink, which is an immortal drink. When I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ and with him shall rise again in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of the beasts, so I may be offered as pure bread to Christ. It says, if you remain silent about me, if you allow me to, to be martyred, I shall become a word of the Lord, meaning a testimony to the world. If you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold my flesh, I will be no more than a mere human voice. His words about wanting to taste the bread of God and the, bl the blood of Jesus echo and make you think of uh, John, uh, James and John when they said, Lord, we, we want those seats next to you. And he said, you got to be willing to drink my cup. And they said, oh, we're willing. And he said, you're right. You actually will drink my cup. Um, he's obviously, Ignatius is not a cannibal, but he's speaking to something that means to be so identified with the life of his Savior so as to experience even the kind of death, martyrdom of his Savior. Then you get to Polycarp. Polycarp. Polycarp's martyrdom we have a lot more details on, some maybe somewhat legendary, but basically what goes on, you've got over in, over in Smyrna, I am not, I'm not going to see it, we're not going to waste time there. You've got over in Smyrna, a group of Christians are brought before the authorities, they refuse to worship the gods that the authorities are telling them to. And uh, one of them, a man by the name of Germanicus, an elderly Christian, was brought to trial. And they basically said, look, man, you're so old. Don't make us kill you. And he said, look, I'd rather be tortured and die, but loyal to my Lord. And so they killed him, and it enraged all the people around them. And all of the people began to shout, death to the atheists. That's one of the claims, right? Christians were atheists because we don't have idols, of our gods. We believe in a God that there is no image for. So in the, in the Roman world, that makes us atheists. They said, bring out Polycarp. So Polycarp at this point, uh, by the way, Polycarp at the time of his death is, is roughly 90 years old. Somewhere in his late 80s, possibly 90. He attempted initially, had some advice to, to flee. He hid for several days, and then he moved and hid in another place, was discovered, and instead of fleeing, he decided the fact that he was discovered must be a sign that God wanted him to walk the path of martyrdom, and so he waited patiently for his captors to come and arrest him. Uh, the, pro, the, 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 the proconsul who tried him looked at him again, Did, Polycarp, you're so old. Don't make us do this to you. People are screaming out with the atheists. They're... And Polycarp looked at the proconsul and said, For 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? He would go on to be burned at the stake. Legend has it that the fire wasn't consuming his body, 
So someone ran up with a sword, slashed him, and he bled out so profusely it put out the fire. So I gave you this to say, and this is where we'll pick up next week, part of the story, especially of the early church, is persecution. Persecution not like what most of us talk about as persecution. I'm not saying that there's not things that are not concerning going on in our society. There's things that are very concerning. But the reality is today, not a one of us walked in here, not a one of us will go home worried that someone is going to kill us because we bear the name Christian. And the majority of Christians in this world, if the numbers are to be believed, cannot say the same. And the question comes when you read stories and you realize the agonizing kind of torturous deaths they were facing. Do we love Jesus so deeply? Are we in awe, simply wondrous awe, at the goodness and greatness of God who saves us so greatly? that it's a joy for us to suffer even the worst of suffering. It's a, it's a question that I cannot read any of this and not always be challenged with no matter how many times I read it. Here are men and women who remain unnamed. Like I said, we only have a few names from this early in the church who probably didn't even have their own personal copy of God's Word, yet did not doubt every word in it. Yet how many copies of the Word do I have? And how many days do I yield to dumb and foolhardy doubts that somehow the Lord doesn't see what I face and somehow His grace might not come through and somehow I'm not good enough and somehow on down the line. That these... Men and women didn't have access to a fraction of what we have access to, but were filled with such awe and wonder, such fear of God that drove their love of God. That they said, you know what, I could flee, but I think the fact that I'm caught is a sign God wants me to go. God wants me to go, and so I'll just sit here and wait for them to come capture me, knowing what's about to happen. It's a powerful challenge to us, and it'll be where we pick up next week. Let me pray our time done. As far as we know, yeah, sorry, update on Guatemala. As far as we know, everything's going smoothly. I have not gotten, I have not gotten an update today, but I have not gotten any negative update, right? So uh, we got some great pictures of them passing out shoes that y'all donated, of them building the house. I mean, we've gotten some great pictures this week. I, Sorry, Ted, I should probably have those on a slide to show y'all. Um, but so far, everything we know in here is great. Uh, I texted the pastors yesterday about a change in staff meeting time, and Matt texted and said he was sorry he wouldn't be able to make it. Uh, and I said, well, the Concord flies fast. So uh, I didn't actually say that. But, uh, um, but as far as I know, they're doing well. So continue to pray. They're having lots of opportunities. And... Um, uh, they are living in the shadow of volcanoes and beautiful sunrises and sunsets for sure. Uh, I don't know if you can put beautiful and volcanoes together, but picture looked pretty. So, uh, no, as far as I know, they're doing good. So let's continue to pray for them. And uh, they do come back Saturday, so they've got two more days of hard works, and then uh, let's just pray they have really smooth, smooth travel, getting home, no issues uh, with all that. So, yeah. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that in the mess of this world, of which we are a part, you are a God whom was delighted and for the joy set before you came to endure the cross to rescue us out of the kingdom of darkness, to share and the inheritance of your kingdom. Lord, and I do confess that there have been too many days when the very real pressures and things that do deserve attention of this world I allow to become 
a distraction and a discouragement and cloud up the view of the glory of your, the brilliance and the radiance of your glory and your grace. And Jesus, I just ask that as we are your church and you are still here, which means you're still working on us, in us and through us, God, that you would make us more than anything, men and women, who truly just love you because you are you and who truly trust every word you say because you are you and you said it. God, when whenever persecution comes, that with a courageous joy we would just walk with you, whether it's into it, whether it's out of it. And then we looked out tonight, and they didn't come out of it. They're coming out of it was coming home to you. There's others who were spared. But Lord, regardless of what the outcome is, that you would just find us a people who fear you, who love you, and who hold nothing back because you are worthy. Thank you, Lord. Here's the real reality. I don't know if it was Polycarp. I don't know if it was Ignatius. I don't know if it was Pappas. I don't know if it was Clement. Reality was it is probably a brother or sister whose name I will never know until I meet them in your presence. But someone back then shared the gospel. To someone who got saved. And that someone did the same. And that someone did the same. And that someone did the same, and they walked faithfully with you. They endured by your grace the persecution, and that person did the same, and that person did the same, and somewhere on down the line, that person did the same, and that person did the same, and somewhere down the line, that person did the same to my great-great-grandfather, who did the same to my great-grandfather, who did the same to my grandfather, who did the same to my mother and my father, who did the same to me, and I am here in you today, having heard the gospel message and responded to it because of your grace and your faithfulness through the faithfulness of your saints. So Lord, thank you for brothers and sisters who didn't drop the ball. And as they've handed us the baton today, Father, find us faithful not to drop the ball, not to run with it in our strength, to run with it by your grace. Not discouraged and not distracted, but faithful because you're worthy. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.